Well, good morning. You guys looking forward to that concert? It's going to be great. Well, um, let's pray once more. Father, we do pray as now we are opening your word and we're going to study the scriptures that we skipped a week ago and also the scripture that is our text for today. We pray, Lord, as we always do, that you would give us application. We're your children. If we've placed our faith in you, we have your spirit in us. If we've placed our faith in you, the teacher, the greatest teacher is you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see these things, apply these things to our life. We thank you in advance, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you're here, you know that we we skipped our next text. The next text in line was uh, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. But we jumped ahead. We looked at the beheading of John the Baptist and how, how all that came about. But today, our text is uh, starts in verse 30. And what we see is we see the apostles now coming back to Jesus. So Jesus... It says that he began to send them out two by two. And so he sends them out two by two. He gives them uh, their marching orders. They're to drive out evil spirits, you know, demons. They're to heal the sick. They're to preach repentance for the king of the kingdom is at hand. And so they went out, and we're not sure how long they were gone. They went out, and then they came back. And when they came back, no doubt they had many stories to tell. Have you guys ever gone on a mission trip? Have you ever gone on a short-term mission, maybe a week or two in Mexico or some other country? And, and it just really radically has an effect upon your life, um, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons, depending upon how the thing went. But you're in an environment. It's not home. It's not familiar with you. But it's all about serving the Lord. That's why you're there. And so you're serving the Lord, and though you're tired and there's challenges and all, it's such a blessing to tell the Lord. And you come back from an event like that, and you have stories to tell. And no doubt they had stories to tell. I could almost imagine them, you know, uh, maybe one of them would speak up and say, oh boy, there was that one guy, uh, you know, and and, and we went into the village, and, and he met us as we were going into the village, and and we thought he was as bad as that guy that had the legion of demons. Remember that one, Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. And, and I mean, it was almost that bad, Jesus. And, and, and we prayed for him, and, and the demons came out. Wow, that was powerful, powerful, you know. And so Jesus, of course, would graciously listen to their stories and encourage them. And, and we see that he did encourage them. He says, well, let, let's go away to a deserted place so that you could rest. You guys are tired. You've been busy and all, and, and, and you can go and rest. We'll go to a deserted place. So they get in the boat, and they go to a place that's supposed to be a deserted place. But, of course, when they arrived at the deserted place, it wasn't deserted at all. There was a multitude of people waiting for them, and, uh, and then we see the reaction. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want you to consider for a moment some things. You know, guys... When the disciples, because these were 
regular men. We've got to remind ourselves of this. When we read the scriptures, there's only one who is holy. There is only one who is perfect, and that's the Lord. Everyone else is just human, you know. Now, the Lord uses them in different ways, and, of course, the Lord enabled them to do the things that they did, that empowering of the Holy Spirit or the power of God. And so we see variations, of course, in how people are being used, but they're still men. When the day is done, they're still men and women. They're just people breathing the same air we breathe, you know, living the lives that we live and all. I would think that when they came back, because this is their first missionary journey. I mean, this is, as you read the, the, the gospel in its context, it would seem that this is the very first time that they're not just watching what Jesus could do, but they're actually participating in what Jesus has been doing. Do you think that maybe when they came back, their heads were a little larger than when they left? I think it would be hard not to allow these things to go to your head, you know. Now, listen, I know, even as I say that, there's someone here that's like hyper-spirit. Of course not. I would never. I know that it comes from the Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact of the matter is, is when even though you're being used by the Lord, even though you know it's the Lord that's empowering you to do the things that you're doing, when people respond favorably to whatever ministry you might be involved in, it's easy to think, maybe I had something to do with this. Maybe I played a part. You're saying, well, you're reading into the text. I am reading into the text, but as you look at the text, I, I, I think that what I'm reading into it can be backed up, and I'll get there in just a few moments. I know this, that the disciples being men, these 12, the apostles, would be a better reference to them. We know that there were rivalries, there were jealousies among them. We know that Peter and John had a rivalry. There was a jealousy. I remember even at the end when Peter's being restored to ministry and the Lord tells him how he will die, you know. And Peter, you know, rather than really pondering the moment, you just told me how I was going to die. I'm going to be crucified like you. Rather than pondering that, what does he say? What about him? I mean, he's just so concerned about, well, what about John? How's his life going to end, you know? And, and of course, um, you know, Jesus said, hey, if I want him to stay here until I come, what's that to you, you know? Constantly putting Peter, and no doubt putting all of them in their place. But if there was inflated egos when they came back from that first missionary journey, we know that in time, because the Lord has a way of working on our egos, if we're truly walking in the Spirit or attempting to walk in the Spirit, he has a way of working humility into us. We know that much later, when Peter and John again, those two, always together it seems, when Peter and John had the opportunity to heal a man who was lame. Remember, I'm referring to Acts chapter 3. They heal a man, and, and then there were the onlookers, and they're looking, and they're obviously just kind of gawking at these men, and, and I love the response, and I'm reading, you don't have to turn there, but Acts chapter 3, verse 12, the second part of the verse, I think it was Peter who was speaking. He said, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us 
as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. So the Lord had worked, was working humility into them, and that's important. As you're being used by the Lord, however that may look, it's going to look different for each one of us as children of God. As you're being used by the Lord, if people respond in a favorable way, we need to be so careful that we don't think, you know, that there's something extra special about us. Because when you think you stand, then you fall. I mean, pride will come in and it sets people up. Guys, this is what we've been seeing. We've seen it in our, in our own state with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. I mean, that was the biggest thing going up here for a long time. Many campuses, multi-million, millions of dollars, you know, this whole thing. And it was built upon one man. You say, that's not fair, Dan. How could you say that? Because when the one man left, it's gone. There are no Mars Hills churches that I'm aware of. It was built on one man. And when the one man toppled, the whole thing fell apart. All the campuses, I mean, it didn't happen overnight, but, but it, it, you know, happened in time. We're watching it with Hillsong now, you know. They just came out with the documentary about Hillsong, and I thought it was interesting that, that Brian Houston has been in hot water because of his dealings or not dealing with the problem of his father, who was a pastor and had molested children, little boys, horrible, horrible thing, didn't deal with this, so now he's dealing with court cases concerning that whole thing, even though it happened, what, 30 years ago, he's still dealing with it, but he just stepped down, I think, last week, because he did not live up to his own church's moral, you know, uh, standards. You, You know, again, that church, maybe it wasn't built upon a man. It was surely built upon the music. I mean, everyone knows Hillsong music, Hillsong worship. And we're watching that crumble and fall. First it happened in New York, then Dallas, I heard today, and of course Australia and around the nation. A number of Hillsong churches have pulled out of the association because they said it will take us a long, long time to recover from kind of the bad press of this whole thing. Sadly, we've even seen it in Calvary Chapel. We have, you know, went through our own kind of split a number of years ago. And, and you have Calvary Chapel Association. That's what I'm a part of. That's what we've been a part of for 40 plus years. But then another rose up and said, I want to do something new. And so you have Calvary Global. And so Calvary Global is going a different direction, in my opinion, uh, spoken about, speaking about things that really, you know, I, I, you know, don't matter. Let's do what we've been told to do. Let's do what we've been doing all of this time. Just simply teach the Word of God. The Spirit of God has a way of teaching us and, and dealing with the issues of life, you know. But I'll tell you, when we're dealing with the issues of life from the pulpit, like, you know, the wokeism and all, I think it's a waste of time. We saw it a number of years ago, Gospel for Asia, KP. KP, we gleaned so much, those of us that were around, we gleaned so much from KP's writings. 
his phenomenal little booklets that he would put out. We couldn't wait for the next one to come out. Here was a man that was walking in humility and, and the things that he would speak, you know, he's got this amazing ministry in India among his own people, the Indian people, and uh, fantastic, wonderful. And then again, pride set in. He doesn't even go by his name any longer. No, it's Metropolitan. And he dresses like a pope. And it's just a shame. And we're watching them fall one after another, after another, after another. Why? Because they're looking to a man. And the man, you know, is the first to be impressed by himself. It's not just a man. There's many women that are in the same category. They're impressed with themselves. Well, when I teach the word of God, people come out. Because I'm such an influential person, you know. And I'll tell you, there's a problem. And the Lord is revealing these things in these last days. We're at the end, I believe. We're at the end of the history of the church on the earth. That the Lord's about to wrap it up and take his church to heaven. But I think that he, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance is opening the eyes of people. Don't ever get put your eyes on man because you'll always be disappointed. Always. Always. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be impressed by Jesus. You know, I'm convinced that the Lord is not looking for super spiritual people. You know why? I've yet to meet a super spiritual person. I've met a lot of people who claim to be super spiritual, but you just talk to them for a short time and you see that they're just like you. In fact, maybe they're worse than you because they're faking it. They're acting like they're something more than they actually are. They're impressed with themselves. But I'm convinced that the Lord is simply using for, obviously, he's looking for saved people, I mean, but he's looking for available people. I've seen the Lord do amazing things with available people. Maybe not the, the, the best speaker or, or whatever, whatever they do, whatever ministry they may have. They might not be the best at it, but the Lord blesses their humility. They're available. They make themselves available to him. I'm convinced that the Lord uses humble people. And if we're not humble when we come to him, he's got a way of working humility into us. And sometimes it's not always comfortable. And I know that the Lord is is desiring to use people who are committed to him because uh you know if you're not committed to him again you're going to lead people astray you say well where do you get all this this is your opinion well listen i have a lot of opinions just as you do but i try to base my opinions upon the word of god let me give you an example first corinthians you could turn there first corinthians chapter 1 verses 27 through 29 i'm going to begin reading for time's sake but remember, this is Paul, and this is what he wrote so long ago. He says, but God has chosen the foolish, literally the dull or stupid. He said, I'm offended. Listen, that's just the Greek word that he used. <laughs> I'm not writing these things. He wrote these things. He says, for God has chosen the foolish, the dull or stupid things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak or the strengthless things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things or ignoble things of the world, and the things which are despised or least esteemed, God has chosen. And the things which are not 
to bring to nothing the things that are. And the rest of the verse gives the reason why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Who's going to glory in their dullness? Their lack of strength? Their weakness? Nobody. I mean, unless you're really foolish that you would glory in, in such things. But the Lord, he uses who he desires to use. He uses them the way he wants to use them. And it's for his own glory. You know, guys, if, we, if I made a statement like that about anybody else, that anybody else would be an egomaniac. But when we're talking about God, it has nothing to do with ego. He is God. We need to remind ourselves of this, even Christians, because sometimes I think we become so familiar, or at least we think we're so familiar with God, that we start making him almost like our best friend. You know, we're just kind of walking down the street together, and we're on the same level, and we're not on the same level as God. You never will be. Throughout all eternity, you'll never be on the same level as God. We are not God's. We are his creation. He is God. He is above all things. We looked at this on Wednesday night that John, in his epistle, he says, no one has seen God at any time, and then he goes on from there. And I pointed out how John uh, made that statement verbatim five different times in his writings, three times in the gospel that he wrote, twice in the epistle that he wrote. No one has seen God at any time. And then I talked about the fact that, you know, we live in a day and age where so many people claim that they've seen God. I've seen God. I've written a book about it. I'm on this TV station and that. Whoever will have me on, you know, and and they have all these stories about seeing God. But yet the Bible says specifically that no one has seen God at any time. You say, one of the brothers, Jim Cuthbertson, came up to me. He says, have you ever had anyone say, but people saw Jesus? And I said, oh, yeah, people will always say stuff like that. But Jesus is the incarnation of God. I said, Jim, remember, God is spirit. How do we know that? He tells us that. He tells us that. So in whatever manifestation, whatever way he chooses to manifest himself, that's his choosing. But no one can see God and live. One day we'll be in his presence with new bodies and we'll be able to see God apparently face to face. Now I, now I look in a mirror dimly, then I will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know as I am. It's interesting that, so they come back, they're tired. They are going to a deserted place, but the deserted place is no longer deserted. There's a multitude of people waiting for them. And here is another opportunity to minister. I, um, a pastor friend of mine years ago wrote in a, a statement. Um, it was in a newsletter, the Servants' Quarters. Or Servants' Quarters? Why does that sound familiar? For some reason, it sounds weird to me. Gillerwin, Servants' Quarters, Quarters, okay. But uh, people would send in little quotes and everything. And he sent in a quote, and I thought it was great. He says, you could always tell a servant by how he or she acts when they're treated like a servant. 
See, that's when it really, you know, I'm a servant of the Lord. Hey, could you come over and help? Um, I'm sorry, I have no time for that. I'm a busy man, you know. Oh. Don't treat me like a servant, you know. But here's another opportunity to minister. And so we see in our text, we see how, how Jesus responded to this opportunity to minister. Look at verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, came out of the boat, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion. That literally means his heart went out to them. If I could, if I could an expression or a, something that would maybe be heard, I'm not saying that Jesus did this, but, but I think that when my heart goes out to someone, there's usually kind of a, oh, there's just, this is kind of a response. And I don't know that Jesus did that, but, but his heart went out to them. He had compassion for them. And this is why, because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. I think often God's people, sadly, we devalue the importance of teaching you need to go through the Gospels. You need to look at what Jesus did in his public ministry. And so often we want to highlight the miracles. And, and I'll tell you, you know, the miracles were fantastic. But I think you'll be surprised by how many times you see in the Gospels that Jesus taught the people, taught the people, taught the people, taught the people. He is the word. He is the logos or logos. He is, he is the revelation of the unseen God. That's who Jesus is. How did God reveal himself to Moses? Again, we saw this on Wednesday night. Moses said, I want to see your face. Oh, you can't see my face and live, you know, but I'll tell you what I'll do. You go stand in the cleft of the rock, I'll pass by, and I will declare my name to you. You say, well, that's boring. No, it's not boring. That's God. That's God revealing himself. And that's what God is doing even now, we have his word. You have his word. Isn't it wonderful that you could look at the revelation of God, the written revelation of God, any day, every day, throughout the day, as much as you want? It's available to you. Most of us have not just one Bible. We have many Bibles. Most of us have many translations of Bibles. So if you have a hard time reading one, you know, you don't like the layout, you can go to another one. You've got the, you know, we're using the New King James but you could go to a New American Standard. It's kind of a thought for thought. That's why it reads a little awkwardly, but it's thought for thought. You know, I'm sorry, word for word. Uh, NIV is thought for thought. It's more on like an eighth grade level of reading, you know. And then you've got the New Living Translation. It's a translation. It's not a paraphrase. I like that. I like to pull that out sometimes. Sometimes I'll just read in my New Living Translation and I can't read very long before I have to put it down, pick up my new King James and make sure it's saying what it's supposed to be saying. And it does. It does. It's, it's very, very accurate. The point is, is that all of us have access to the word of God, to the teachings of Christ and the apostles. And we shouldn't devalue these things. We should honor these things. So we see how Jesus responded, another opportunity to minister a multitude. And then we see how... The 12 responded in verse 36. Send them away. 
send them away that, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy for themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. So Jesus, his response is compassion. His heart goes out to them. Their, their response was, we are overwhelmed. There is nothing we could do. Which brings us to what Jesus said to them, which I think is really, really important. First of all, he asked them what they had. And, um, and so they responded, you know, the, uh, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Now, you might say, well, you know, yeah, that's Mark's version. John's version, John tells us this. John tells us in his gospel account that Jesus said to Philip, he says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And then John gave his commentary. So it's not Jesus saying this, but John's commentary on the whole thing. John said this, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus says, you feed them. Big shots. <laughs> no, that, that's me. I'm sorry. But I wonder, you know, they went out on this missionary journey. They drove out many demons. They laid hands and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they were healed. And now they come back. We have to remember that the Gospels were written from the Apostles' perspective. Jesus isn't writing the Gospels. The Apostles are writing the Gospels. You say, well, wait a minute. John wasn't an Apostle. That's right. John, I'm sorry. Mark. We're in Mark's Gospel. Mark was most likely not even there because he was not one of the 12. So I don't think for a moment that Mark you know, knew what happened when they went on these journeys, except for what he was told by his source. And we believe that, that, that Mark's source was Peter. Uh, Peter makes mention of Mark, and so we know that they had a connection. And so I wonder, and of course I'm just reading into this because the scripture doesn't tell us this, but I wonder, I wonder if Peter, years later, He's talking to Mark, and he says, Mark, when we came back from that first missionary journey, we were so full of ourselves. I mean, we were like, you know, levitating. We were, we were so, you know, excited that we had this mountaintop experience. We went out. We did these things. We came back, and then there was a multitude and the feeding of the 5,000, and there was absolutely nothing we could do. We had no power to do anything. We couldn't feed them. We suggested going and, and, and buying enough bread, but 200 denarii was the equivalent of, uh, at that time to over a year's worth of, of salary. You know, you're, you're paid. And they didn't have that money. And so they didn't even think about, maybe one of us could do a miracle, you know, because we haven't seen any food miracles yet. You know. Jesus is always surprising them. Because he's always doing something different that they didn't expect. 
Remember, guys, what came from all of this? Again, if you go to John's gospel account, don't go there, but John's gospel account, Jesus feeds the multitude, and all of a sudden he has these groupies that are coming along, and Jesus calls them out. I love the way the Lord was so direct because he loves people, and he doesn't want, to, he doesn't want people to deceive themselves. You'll have to read it, but John chapter 6 into 7 Jesus says, you guys are following me because you ate and your bellies were filled. Don't seek bread that perishes. Uh, Moses, say, pull a rabbit out of your hat, Lord. Moses gave us bread from heaven. Jesus says, (laughs) Moses didn't give your father's bread from heaven. My father gave bread from heaven. So now they're thinking manna. Oh, good. Maybe, maybe we're going to have a manna experience. Wouldn't you love to taste manna? I would love to taste manna. I mean, they complained about it, but I would like to taste it. I, it sounded like it was kind of sweet and it was satisfying and gave you enough nourishment for the day. I should go on a manna diet. But, of course, then Jesus began to speak. I am the bread that came from heaven. What? What are you talking about? And then he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. We're done. We're out of here. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I don't know that we're going to stick around to see what you're talking about. Peter looks at the 12. Do you guys want to leave too? See, guys, the context is really important here. You guys want to leave too? Peter, no, Lord, no. We've realized that you, you're him. See, these moments of truth, listen, we can so easily become full of ourselves. I remember as a young man, and I was doing youth ministries, you know, for six years, and and high school kids and I would watch this pattern and I'd watch high school kids from our church they would you know 16 they'd get their driver's license then they would get a job so that they could pay for the insurance on their car and then they stopped coming to youth group and then eventually they had to work on Sundays or Wednesdays so they stopped coming to church and I'll be honest as a youth pastor all my kids were little we see we all look at things differently I would judge those parents and say, what's wrong with those parents? They don't know how to keep their kids in order. I'll tell you what. Keeping your kids in order when they're like this is a piece of cake compared when they get like this. And we could so often make these judgments, you know, and everything else until we live it And you're humbled, and you realize, oh, Lord. You know, Lord, I can do nothing without you. I was the best parent on the earth until it was proven that I'm not a very good parent. I'm a struggling parent. I've got some real struggles here, you know. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Listen, we should know our limitations. I can't, you know, God will not use, listen, I I shouldn't say that. 
there are so many people that are filling pulpits that are so full of themselves. I mean, you know, I was listening to an interview with the ex-head of security at Mark Driscoll's new church in Arizona. And he said that his first meeting with Mark, you know, he walked in. He's the head of security, you know, the church. And he's talking to Mark, and then Mark stops him and goes down a list of his accomplishments and says, now you know who you're protecting. That is so gross. That's going to crumble just like this crumbled. Because he's big in his own eyes. And I'll tell you what, I don't care who we are. And I don't care where it's at. You say, oh, ministry, ministry. Well, I'm not in ministry, so that doesn't affect me. Listen, all areas of life as Christians, we need to be humble. And we need to recognize our limitations. And I think that when we honestly recognize our limitations, our prayers become more fervent because we realize, we realize something that maybe didn't sink in for the apostles when they first came back from that missionary journey. All the things we did, casting out demons, laying our hands, anointing with oil, sick people, and they got healed. Could we do that before Jesus gave us the power to do it? Nope. But we did it after he gave us the power to do it. Yep. Well, who should get the glory? It's not your power. It's not my power. It's not our abilities. It's the Lord who does it, who gives it. And and there should be this humility. There should be this willingness to say, Lord, I can do nothing without you. I'll tell you, we need this. Sometimes humbling experiences follow a mountaintop experience. I think of Elijah. You know, Elijah, he, he has this great victory on Mount Carmel. 400 prophets of Baal, you know, they dine at, at Jezebel's table. And, and there he is, this prophet, elderly man, and he's mocking them, you know. Maybe, maybe your God is, you know, maybe he's on vacation, maybe he's on the toilet, whatever, you know, he's just mocking them and everything. And then it's his turn. And, and it just kind of really plays up the whole thing. And he's got his altar there. And then he says, you know, let's put water on it. And they dumping water on it. And more water, more water, you know. And it's building the anticipation. And then he just simply speaks. And fire comes down and consumes the offering on the altar. Great victory. Great victory. And then he, and then he gets a message from Jezebel. I mean, you talk about a defeat. You have no prophets to eat at your table any longer. They're dead. They're gone. I'm going to kill you. What does he do? He goes and hides in a cave. I'm scared to death. And the Lord, you know, the Lord tells him, go go stand out on the mountain. I'm going to talk to you, you know. So he stands out there, and the wind's blowing. And the wind's blowing to such a degree. I mean, this is a miraculous thing. Rocks are breaking. But it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. You know, it goes, and then the earthquake, and then the fire. And then finally it gets to, and the still small voice of God. 
I'll tell you, it's not God saying, you're so arrogant. I'm going to get. It's that still, small voice that drops us to our knees and we say, I am so sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry that I was so prideful. I'm so sorry that I thought more highly of myself than I ought to, ought, to, ought to have. It's that still, small voice. And remember what the voice said to him? Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't know, Lord. I don't think we'll end up in that place where the Lord has to ask us, what are you doing here? If we humbly walk before him, if we, if we recognize who we are in him, you know, guys, the church in so many ways on planet earth is twisted. You got a whole group of people that are in the kingdom now. We're going to make the, man, it's the seven mountain mandate. And we're going to bring, we're going to bring to the arts and to government and to politics and to the banking and all of these things. And the Christians, we're going to become so influential that we're going to prepare the world for Jesus to come back. Kingdom now theology. Some of you have attended churches and you didn't even know that that was the doctrine behind the things that were coming from the pulpit. And you wonder, why is it so man-centered? Why is it so, you know, we're us. We're the victorious one. We're the sons of Joel. We're, 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 we're the head and not the tail. It's because the whole foundation is built upon this lie that somehow the church is going to usher in the coming of Christ, where the Bible clearly says that things are unraveling, things are falling apart, things are going from bad to worse. And then Jesus comes in to rescue it all. He doesn't come in because the earth has been Christianized. See, this is why the same churches believe in a preterist view of the book of Revelation. Most of you probably never even cracked open the book of Revelation in some of your churches because your pastors, they, don't have, they haven't done enough study to even know what the Bible says about Bible prophecy. And they say, this is all history, man. This has already happened. It's just a history lesson. Well, you got a problem with that history lesson because how in the world do you fit in the Antichrist? Where is he? How in the world do you fit in the horrific things that are going to happen in the world? How in the world do you fit in the 144,000? Who are they? The Bible makes it clear that they're 144,000 Jewish men. What in the world do you do with the thousand-year reign? How do you explain that away? How is that a historical event? Please show me so that I can look back in church history and say, that was representative of that thousand-year reign of Christ. Show me when there was a time when Satan was bound for a thousand years or a week. (laughs) An afternoon. You see what I'm saying? But see, this this is it. There's this strange, strange thinking. And so you have pride in the church rather than humility. We are saved not because we're good. We are saved because Christ, the Lamb of God, went to the cross, the sinless one. He died a righteous death for the unrighteous of the world. 
And we are saved because we believe that and we place our faith in Christ. He's given us his spirit so that we might be able to live the Christian life that he's called us to live. He's given us his word so that we could read his word and study his word and see, boy, you know what? I can't, I can't justify this pride within my life and everything revolving around me. And Because we don't see that in the scriptures. What we see in the scriptures is we see Christ as a servant master. He set the example for us. I've come to serve you, Jesus. Yes. So you serve. How, Lord? Guys, do we forget these these monumental things that happened on the night before he was arrested? You guys know it. What does he do? What does he take time to do to wash the disciples' feet? See, again, modern-day Christianity, we put it in such a, oh, yes, well, actually, what that meant, and actually, no, he took on the position of a slave have you ever washed someone's feet we did this one time when i was doing youth ministries and one of the kids he was an athlete scott carpenter he was an athlete he was an athlete and he didn't shower a lot and i got his feet and this is in the 80s when high tops were big and that thing was, those things were closed up, and I opened it up, and it was like, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing this to teach the kids an illustration. What have I done to myself, you know? <laughs> it's a very humbling thing. It's, it doesn't feel spiritual. Have you ever had your feet washed? I had someone come in my office one time. It was really kind of awkward to me, you know? I'm here to wash your feet, and I thought they were just going to, like, minister to me. And then he went out to the car and got a bucket of water and a towel and everything and took my shoes off. And I'm just kind of sitting there going, "Mm." (laughs) this this really feels uncomfortable right now, you know. I'm not enjoying this. But Jesus was teaching them. I I need to end. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I I do this every Sunday. I I apologize. So that if you're visiting, you say, oh, we went over that. No, this is a norm for me. Look at at verse 41. Real fast. I I need to end it with this. Verse 41. And when he had taken, so he he takes. when When he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples. Isn't that beautiful? How he wants us to participate. He did the work of redemption. We didn't do any work of redemption. And yet he invites us to invite others to place their faith in him. That's our Lord. And then he says, now be humble about it. Okay, Lord. But it's so exciting to see people come to Christ. It is, but be humble about it. Okay, Lord. Broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set them before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So look at this. He taken, blessed, broke, gave. I, I, I can't help but believe that this is what the Lord wants to do to us. Now, I'm, I'm spiritualizing this. I'm using this as an illustration. But I think that the Lord wants to take us. And he wants to bless us. And he wants to break us of our own ways so that he can give us and use us to serve others in his name. You're not going to win anyone 
by going in, expressing your strengths. People will say, man, that guy's full of himself. But when you go in and people see your weakness and what God has done, it gives everybody hope. Everybody. From the least to the greatest, it gives everybody hope. I want to read this to you. I, if This is a book that you need to get and read. It's a lovely book. Roy Hessian, The Calvary Road. Over the years, we've given away probably cases of these over the years. It's just such a wonderful book. It's a book that, it's so short, you know, and the, the letters are really big, so it's easy to read and my kind of book. But don't think that you'll be able to read it real fast because you won't. Because it's kind of one of those books that as you're reading it, you'll stop dead in your tracks and you'll say, oh, well, let me show you. To be broken is the beginning of revival. It is painful. It is humiliating. But it is the only way. It is being not I, but Christ. And a C is a bent I. I got to skip down for time's sake. This simply means that the hard and yielding self, which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands up for its rights, seeks its own glory, at last bows its head to God's will, admits its wrong, gives up its own way to Jesus, surrenders its rights, and discards its own glory. And this is why. That the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words, it is dying to self and self-attitudes. Roy Hessian, get the book. You'll love it. You guys come up, and I'm going to close with this. This is what Jesus said. You know it. He said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. The word literally means to deny utterly, to disown, to abstain, and to take up his cross and follow me. That word means to be in the same way with, to deny, I'm sorry, to accompany as a, as a disciple. For whoever desires to save, to deliver, to protect his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his own works. Get involved in the service of the Lord, whatever that looks like. Do it for his glory. Guys, listen. How we live our life now has a bearing upon what we'll experience later in eternity. You need to study these things. I mean, it's a great motivator. You know, you have the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, and they, and, and many believe, and I fall into this category, that they represent the church. And I think if you look closely at what they say, there's only one group that could say the things they were saying. So, homework. But what do they do? I love the fact that they take these crowns that they have on their heads and they cast them at the feet of King Jesus. And so 
I think of all the times, I mean, there's not a lot of times, but there's a number of times that we're told about crowns that are given to Christians, you know. Um, I want to have crowns. Why? Not so I could wear them, but so I could cast them. I, you know, it's, it's like if I was at, at uh, you know, the uh, Palm Sunday, you know what I'd want? I'd want a palm branch. I'd want a big palm branch so that I could sing the psalm and wave the thing, you know, because that's what's supposed to happen there. So we want to do the appropriate thing at the appropriate place, you know, and, and there's going to be that day when we're in his presence. So would you stand with me, please? Father, I pray that we would be humble in our approach to you. We pray that you would use us, Lord. We thank you for the times that you have used us. We thank you, Lord. We pray that we would always be reminded it's your spirit, it's your word, it's your salvation, it's your hope, it's your healing, it's your whatever it is. It's yours, it's yours, it's yours. And that the words that would freely just flow from our lips constantly would be, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We do thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.